Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. Welcome back for a bonus recording here. We're going to go ahead and we are going to go through the book of Daniel. I think this is going to be two or three parts here over the next few weeks because uh, unlike the Minor Prophets series that we uploaded, Daniel is huge. It's a big, thick book. And by thick, I mean among all the prophets, Daniel has a lot of mystery, a lot of necessary uh, understanding, a lot of interpretation that has to be done. It's a very mysterious book, the same way Zechariah was. In Zechariah, it took me two and a half hours to record. This is going to be, um, this is probably going to be up to four or five, maybe even six hours of just reading it and covering the basics. But as promised, we're going to go ahead and look through the entirety of the book of Daniel, and we are going to see how far we get with today's first installment. Now, a little bit of background here. Who was Daniel? Daniel is a prophet. Daniel is from the land of Judah, and he lived most of his life under the Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire as it was called, which lasted from Nebuchadnezzar's ascendancy and defeat of Assyria until the death of Belteshazzar and Nabonidus in about 539 BC. After which, of course, the Medo-Persian Empire was uh, ascendant and taking over everything. So Daniel, over, he lived during the period of three large major world empires. And that makes him, uh, well, I, I guess you could say that makes him just eminently qualified to comment on things, which makes it curious why his book is so short. But he starts here in the first chapter, if you're turning with me, we're going to start in the first chapter, and it starts at about 606 or 605 BC, right after King Nebuchadnezzar has taken over Judah by defeating the Egyptians. So let's go ahead and start taking a look. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So, from those first seven verses here in the first chapter, we learn a good deal about what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar 
kicks Egypt's butt, conquers the whole thing. He takes Judah. And then he has this program. Nebuchadnezzar, in his annals, was known as a, a collector of people. While Assyria, like when you, when you think about how they ran their empires, right? Assyria liked to take over a place, completely conquer it, murder and just kill thousands and thousands of people. And then they would export people. They would mix up the, the locals so that with a multi-ethnic country now, there's no unity among the people and that keeps rebellions from happening. That's not the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take the best and the brightest of every nation that he conquered and engage in brain drain, saying, let's see what you know. I want to know your expertise on everything. So he orders for the best of the best of the elites in Judah to be taken over to Babylon. And then they would be educated in their language, in their mythology, in Babylonian astrology, as well as all sorts of other things like that. Their history, their magic system, everything. So that now there is an interplay and a dialogue between this country that Nebuchadnezzar takes over and the Babylonians themselves. Everybody learns and the Babylonians benefit the most. That's that's the idea here. But he also wants these to be strapping young lads, you see. These got to be young guys because they got to be serving him for a very long time. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're a bunch of young guys that are really well educated. You might think of them as the kids that went to private school or young Harvard graduates or Mensa club kids that having been raised either with the priesthood or with the, uh, the people running the government in Judah or serving under the king, they've got the best chances for benefiting the kingdom of Babylon. But, again, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has another motive also for wanting them to learn the Babylonian way of doing things. And uh, I think specifically... If they are assimilated into Babylonian culture, then it is less likely that they will use this great intellect of theirs and all their talents for, well, for rebellion's sake, or to try to hatch an escape plan. So he puts them through this school to make them more Babylonian, and to get them used to it, and tells them, Hey, uh, you get to eat my food. I'm going to give you privileges here, you see. Kind of like the way uh, prisoners or people being interrogated by a foreign force will get little perks here and there. Maybe give a cigarette to the soldier that the Viet Cong captures, kind of a thing. Let them have little perks here. That means they get to eat the king's food. How delightful. Now they can see the Babylonians as their friends. Well, let's see how Daniel and his friends, uh, how they responded to this. So, chapter 1, starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that... You were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age. 
so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So a little bit of a commentary on this. Daniel doesn't have a problem eating food that's given to him in this, uh, this program here, but he says it would defile him. So chances are Nebuchadnezzar here is eating pork, he's eating uh, shellfish, Babylon was right by the Euphrates River, so they're eating just about everything that crawls out of that water. Well, the question ends up being, though, is this according to the Levitical dietary laws? And the answer is no. So Daniel says, well, listen, I want to follow my religion. I don't want to defile myself. Let me, let me place a bet with you, Mr. Eunuch. We'll eat vegetables for 10 days. It doesn't mean they're vegans, but we're, we'll eat nothing but vegetables for 10 days. You give us our grain, you give us our peas and all the onions and stuff like that. And see how we're doing versus these other guys. And God blesses that. He blesses Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, he blesses their work to obey his law. And that so there are some people who might try to use this as like a God underlining and giving his support to veganism. I have heard it said that oh veganism, veganism is what we're really talking about here. But in all reality, it was. God just blessing their diet the same way he blessed the food of manna that the children of Israel ate in the wilderness period just after the exodus. And so continuing on, let's go ahead and cap off the rest of this chapter by reading verse 17 to 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So, four young guys, Daniel being kind of the chief among them here, they are found to be wiser and to have more understanding than all these people. Now, it does say in verse 17 that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, they're being educated in everything. Uh, there are some people where they have the ability to study a lot of the occult stuff going on around them without engaging in it. And there was probably a lot of that going on if they had three years of intense Babylonian education. But what 
what constitutes wisdom in Holy Scripture? Well, from the book of Proverbs, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is always so conflated with righteousness in the book of Proverbs that to understand and want to obey God's commandments, namely the Ten Commandments, is going to give you greater wisdom and understanding than 99% of your peers. So when you look at Daniel and his buddies being found to be more wise, is it just because God made them good learners? Well, that's a part of it, but also because there is wisdom inherent in desiring to obey God and follow his ways. And then in verse 21, just as a reminder, it says, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So from 606 BC, just about, to 539 BC, this is Daniel being there for 67 years. 67 years of living in Babylon and working under these kings, and then plus one. (laughs) Poor man, but at this time, remember, he's a young guy. He's probably in his very early 20s, and so he's going to be close to 90, maybe even pushing 100 by the time he dies. Again, God was blessing his health, keeping him preserved, so that he could be writing this book for us. But let's go ahead, and now we're going to get into the first of the very, very mysterious things here in the book of Daniel. We're going to get into chapter 2. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, here's something interesting here. The chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, it's easy for us to get tripped up and see third year this, but then second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Just keep in mind, this is second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign after his empire has been established. He's no longer just the leader of some rogue city-state trying to defeat the Assyrians. So this is after Daniel's three-year education period, even if it says it's the third, you know, the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 2, verse 1. But moving along, sorry. Verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. 
If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, king, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So, Nebuchadnezzar, being so troubled, is certain that he needs the real deal. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's... There's lots of sophistry in the world. There's lot, you can come up with any interpretation of any dream if you just know how to kind of weasel your way through. right? If I dream about an owl falling out of the sky and I tell my buddy that, he could go, I don't know, man, sounds like stocks are going to take a dip because there's falling. You can just make something up. But King Nebuchadnezzar is so troubled that he says, I need the real thing. I need somebody that has real divine power real something to give me and if they're the real deal then they're going to know what my dream is without me telling them and of course the magicians and enchanters well they don't they don't seem to have any confidence in the demons that they're worshiping it doesn't sound like marduk can help them this time right but there is one who has faith and a reputation for being able to interpret dreams, and that is the prophet Daniel. So Daniel is going to come in, and he will interpret the dream. In fact, I'm sure they're all very relieved at that, that, hey, wait a second, there's one man that can do it. Please don't kill us. Let's go to Daniel. <clears throat> so let's continue here in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now, here's something interesting. 
why does Daniel, who obviously, as he writes this book, he's prayed a lot in his life. We have to ask ourselves as Bible readers and as Bible interpreters, of course, asking for God to open our eyes and our hearts to the scripture, it's good to still ask questions. Daniel prayed all the time. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I know that's not their actual names, that's the names that Nebuchadnezzar gave to them, but uh, forgive me if I'm partial to the Veggie Tales thing of Rack, Shack, and Benny. But when you ask yourself, of all these prayers, why did Daniel remember this one? He had prayed many times for God's help and deliverance. He had prayed many times thanking God for what God had done in his life. But here he includes this one. And I believe he includes this prayer of thanksgiving because it also tells us something about his life as a prophet. What does it say here in verse 20? Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. So Daniel, in praying this, says, This is not my wisdom, this is not my strength. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel understands that God is in control of all things in the world and whoever is in charge of whatever country, empire, estate, etc., and then in verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So regarding these supernatural revelations Daniel has and that he's going to be giving to us and showing to us, it says this comes from God. This isn't me saying it as Daniel the prophet. This is God's revelation to us. Things that heretofore before Daniel were more or less very closely kept secrets by the Lord who now is revealing it to them. So to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So with Daniel chapter 1 in this half of chapter 2, uh, the prophet Daniel shows us God brought us over here through the, the capture of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And in doing so, our obedience was tested, but God helped us to be obedient to his law. And thus he allowed us to be in this position. And now, for the sake of King Nebuchadnezzar and for the sake of everybody who reads this book, we're going to reveal... Well, we're going to reveal some stuff, and it's going to be very important. So let's go ahead and keep reading here in chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. So keep in mind, Daniel just gave all the credit to God. He is taking this as an opportunity to do basically evangelism, proto-evangelism here. It's great. You love to see it. But now he keeps going. In verse 29, To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So from verse 31, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king... The king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, 
Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now here's where, <clears throat> here's where we run into a difficulty. Because Daniel interprets the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar to Nebuchadnezzar's satisfaction. Daniel does not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream to our satisfaction. For instance, do you know what the most typical interpretation of his dream is? The identification of these empires is. Well, we know that the head of gold on this giant statue is Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, well that seems it, like it's bringing up the Babylonian Empire. Okay, so the head of gold is Babylon. But then Daniel says to him that there's going to come an empire that isn't as good. It's not as good. Hmm. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. In uh, verse 39. Okay, so that's the silver kingdom. The chest and the arms. Well, two arms, most interpreters will say, two arms... Well, there's the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. Oh, yes. Medo-Persian Empire. Two arms, two kingdoms as one. And then, of course, the belly and the thighs are Greece. And Greece, of course, being an exporter of bronze, they loved them some bronze. That makes so much sense. And then legs of iron. That's got to be Rome. Because Rome came in and Rome just destroyed everything around them. Oops, wait, wait, wait a second. The interpreter saying this, the person identifying these empires that Daniel does not name, they just employed what you might call an inconsistent hermeneutic here. They said there's two kingdoms coming into one for the Medo-Persian Empire, but then Rome, which was a singular empire for a very long time, well, that's just two legs. And they're not carrying over that principle of, well, two being one, two being one. I have never seen any biblical interpreter or commentator say that, oh yeah, R Rome is also two empires, or two kingdoms that became one. But, typically what they'll say is that, yes, Nebuchadnezzar's the head, then you have the Medo-Persian Empire, then you have Greece, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then you have the Roman Empire. And because Rome never really fell as an empire, it more just kind of morphed and shifted and dissolved. Uh, you have the strength of the Roman Empire, but not the unity of it. Clay mixed with iron. And we're kind of living in that, a lot of commentators would say. So that's their kind of world history class. <clears throat> But that's not a guaranteed interpretation. Instead, let's say all of this is B.C., before Christ. Nebuchadnezzar is the head. We could say that the Medo-Persian Empire, well, what if it's just the Persian Empire? Then 
the Persian Empire. <laughs> so the Median Empire, then the Persian Empire, or Persian and then Persian, for the chest, and then the bronze stomach. Then Greece would be the iron legs. And then I uh, could say, oh yeah, Greece was the iron legs because they traveled everywhere from Macedonia all the way to the edges of the Near East. And then the feet of clay and iron would be Rome. Okay, I could say that. But what's the point? This interpretation satisfied Nebuchadnezzar very, very well. It satisfied him. And I think that's because Nebuchadnezzar saw the point. The point is that rock. The point is the rock that comes in. And it says here, <clears throat> the I, sorry, in verse 34, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, what does that tell us? Well, many most commentators will say this stone has to be Christ. Because after all, it says a stone that no human hand carved out. A new kingdom. A kingdom that is not carved out of normal human political dealings. But instead, well, if it's not by human hands, then it's God doing this. And if it's going to be a great mountain that fills the whole earth, well, over the past 2,500 years, what is the only body that fits that description? It is the church. So, the Christ event is when this stone comes in, hurled at the kingdoms of the earth and robbing them of their power. Even though by the time Jesus died upon that cross, three days later he rises from the dead, that is five, over 500 years after Nebuchadnezzar dies. But what is the point of that? Nebuchadnezzar's religion is gone. The Medo-Persian Empire's religion, which would later be identified with Zoroastrianism, that ends up going by the wayside. Everything is filled with Christ. He becomes the chief subject of discourse. He becomes the definer of B.C. and A.D. He becomes the single most important historical and religious figure, period, par none. Nobody beats Jesus. <laughs> and that is the kingdom, his kingdom, which fills the entire earth the same way the church does. That's more important. And much more important than identifying, well, who's Greece and who's Rome? But if I had to, to wager a guess, I would say that the standard line of interpreting this, uh, this statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees, yeah, it does seem that the standard line of it is true. After all, because Rome did not start as a unified, as a divided body of East and West, but became one. So like iron legs, it starts out with the groin area and then goes into an east and west, uh, so Rome and Constantinople. But then as barbarian invasions happen, 
as the Huns have their way with different parts of the Roman Empire and uh, the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, the Goths, the Vandals, and all of these other things happen. It becomes a brittle empire, which eventually just doesn't last. Of course, it doesn't ever officially fall. Even after the fall of Rome, people were still claiming to be in charge of Rome. And to this day, the Roman Empire is still felt. The Roman Catholic Church is kind of an extension of the Roman Empire insofar as it was the state religion of the Roman Empire and kept going even after there was no Roman Empire. So we keep looking at this kind of thing and we see that yes, Daniel is making a prophecy where the point of it that satisfies King Nebuchadnezzar is there's going to be the Christ event. There's going to be a kingdom that is not of this earth that will fill the entirety of the earth and it will make all of this power, all of this glory of mankind, basically nothing. Like when Napoleon Bonaparte, he commented that He knew power. He and Alexander the Great did, and they can control millions of men, but millions upon millions upon millions of men would die for Jesus Christ because Jesus loved them and saved them. Napoleon had to do it by force, by telling people, do this or die. Jesus just died for them, and suddenly now everybody's dedicated. Napoleon was floored writing about this in exile. It's actually when Napoleon converted to Christianity. But here in Daniel, it's that same thing. That as as Nebuchadnezzar is seeing this sliver, this hint of the gospel, he's going, that's enough, I see it now. That's good enough for me. And let's see how he screws this up and misunderstands it. Let's go ahead and start reading in chapter 3 here, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, what are we seeing here in these first verses, the first seven verses of chapter 3? King Nebuchadnezzar hears that his head, his, you know, he's the head of gold. So why don't I make, you know, big think here. Why don't I make myself a statue of gold that represents me? Or represents Babylon in all of her majestic glory. Me. 
<laughs> I mean, that's the closest thing we can see, that as soon as he has this vision revealed to him, he goes out and makes a giant statue of gold and says, well, I was at the top, so of course I need the most honor. And it's a big molded image. So let's see what happens with this. Therefore, starting in verse 8 here, Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, real quick, you might notice that Daniel is not included on that list. We've got Rakshak and Benny here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why isn't Daniel there? Well, it says it's a malicious accusation, meaning they have bad intent by revealing that these guys are not bowing down to the giant golden Babylon idol that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. They probably didn't think they could touch Daniel. They probably thought that Daniel was too prized of a person and a wise man in Babylon to the point where they knew that if they made that accusation, Nebuchadnezzar might carve out an exception for him. But it could also be that Nebuchadnezzar simply told Daniel, hey, don't be here. I know you only worship one God, the true God, so if you're not going to bow down, just stay at home that day. Something, anything. But all we know is these three men are accused of not worshiping the idol. Okay. That's pretty sensible, and these men, their faith in God is tested. Let's look at how that happens. In verse 13 of chapter 3, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were no thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and guilted up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province in the province of Babylon. So you might notice that there's a ton of repetition. Daniel really likes to do that. And just in, it's a note on the writing style, because Lord knows you've heard 70 or 80 times now here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The way Daniel writes this is so that it gets stuck in the mind. It's for memory's sake, you see. And Hebrew poetry and Hebrew writing is built with that structure in mind, that with lots of repetition comes lots of internalizing of what the Bible is teaching you. It was a way of educating us, even if to our modern ears it might sound, well, redundant. But, anyway, Rackshack and Benny here, they have their faith tested. And they say, listen, you can kill us, but we're going to worship the one true God. That's it. I'm not going to bow to this idol that you have constructed. So Nebuchadnezzar gets furious. We can understand, too. He was just told that his was the head of gold in his vision. He sets up a statue to his honor, being the greatest of the kings in all of these kings and empires and everything. Nebuchadnezzar, the star of the show. And then he's told, yeah, we're not worshiping that. <laughs> we're not going to honor you that way. Yeah, it might be a bummer that your empire is not going to last and that after you is some weaker, inferior kingdom. But sorry, <laughs> we're not going to do it. So, of course, he gets upset. And somehow Daniel is spared this whole rigmarole, this whole incident. We don't know what exactly happened. But it is after this that all three of these guys are spared. The fires are so hot at first that it just straight up kills people. <laughs> it kills the guys throwing them in there. And then there is a 
fourth person there. Now, the the theory that Nebuchadnezzar here says is, uh, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. He's seeing a servant of the gods. He says a son of the gods, which we as Christians, we immediately go, Jesus is the son of God. This must be Christ. But Nebuchadnezzar says probably some some miniature, some messenger or some uh, servant of the gods came and helped out. Maybe Marduk's buddy. Who knows? As Christians, we say either this was an angel or this was Jesus. Possibly, yes. Because Jesus is called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. So with that, though, there is a divine deliverance. And that's the point. It is God himself ensuring that these three men are preserved in their righteous obedience to his law. They are preserved from harm by these fires. And, you know, it, it burns their straps. They're able to just walk around, whereas previously they were all tied together. And Nebuchadnezzar marvels at this. Remember, this is the king that was searching for the real deal. He was searching for the real deal of the enchanters and diviners and astrologers. He was searching for the real deal, and then he thinks, well, now I can look at myself and give myself all this great honor because I found the real deal. And then he's floored that the real deal made an appearance. The real deal showed up and delivered these three guys that he was about to have executed. That's important to know. Because here in our modern day, is our faith tested? Oh, you better believe it. Our faith is tested every day. But who preserves us from the destruction that that reaches? Of course, our Lord. This is why we go to the sacrament. This is why we hear the word with gladness. Because our God preserves us in the face of persecution. And if he will preserve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through those fires, even if we die, we know that our souls are preserved as well. This is an example of God's mighty preservation of his saints. But that's enough for today. We will go ahead and call it good for there. It's been about 50 minutes. Um, But we will be reading all of Daniel. And we will be getting through this whole book and rejoicing that God has given this treasure to us. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for the book of Daniel. We praise you for these first three chapters. While everybody's interested in the prophecy and everything, it's easy to forget, oh Lord, that you give us these powerful examples of men who stood firm in the face of persecution, in the face of challenges to their faith, in the face of state power breathing down their necks and saying, bow down or eat defiled food. Men who stayed loyal to you even after they were ripped from their homeland. Oh dear Heavenly Father, may we learn from these saints' examples and be loyal to you always. Please preserve us and bless us in our baptismal faith, and may we adore and worship you forever. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray it. Amen.